In our series on an Old Testament Christmas, uh, Pastor Rob has asked me to speak on the Lord Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. So that's where we want to go this morning. Now, most of you are familiar, though I have talked to some who are not as familiar with how the scriptures came about. Uh, some are brand new to this, and some of you sitting there when I say turn to Deuteronomy, well, you immediately go to it. Others have maybe never even heard of the book of Deuteronomy. So let me just take a minute and say, number one, the Bible's broken up into two basic sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books to it. The New Testament has 27 books to it. When you look at the Old Testament, it's divided into three categories called the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And there were three elevated offices uh, in the Old Testament, Prophets, Priests, and Kings. Now, people who were appointed to these offices, and these were greatly respected offices, were called by God and anointed. So the Old Testament word Messiah, which we sing about, and we talk about, and we see scriptures, Jesus is the Messiah, literally means, the Hebrew word Meshach means anointed one. When you come to the New Testament, the Old Testament was written Hebrew, for the most part. The New Testament was written in Greek. So the Greek counterpart of the Old Testament Messiah is the Greek word Christos, which of course is Christ. So when it is recorded, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, it's speaking of the same word Messiah, Old Testament, Christos, New Testament, as the fulfillment of prophecy. So as we especially will see in the New Testament this morning as well, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies as it related to the prophet and the high priest and the final king. So listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 20, uh, in, in Luke uh, 24, 44, where it's after his resurrection, but it's before his ascension and he's ministering to his disciples for 40 days. Notice what he said. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, let me just give you a little illustration here. I came up with a uh, painting by an, an artist quite a few years ago, the turn of the 20th century. And he took the letters of the Constitution of the United States and he, and he painted the letters uh, and then he shaded each letter so that when you looked right down at the painting itself, you could see uh, the, the words as the framers intended the Constitution to be. But then as you stepped back and you looked at the same portrait, those shaded areas were done in such a way to bring about the picture of George Washington, who of course was the one who convened the, Congre the, the, the Constitutional Convention and was our first president. Now that's the same way that I think Pastor Rob intends, and I suggest for you, that every time you open the Old Testament scripture, 
What I want you to see is just like that Constitution writing, except now I want you to see the words of Scripture, but then coming to the front, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every book of the Old Testament pictures the Lord Jesus Christ. If you miss Christ in Genesis, Exodus, and right on through the 39 books of the Old Testament, you miss the main message of the Old Testament. It was preparing and prophesying for this one who would be our prophet, our priest, and our king. Now that's what you find in the Old Testament. So all the laws, all the ceremonies, all the prophecies, typical and, and verbal, as you step back from it, you should see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So let's look at Jesus in the Old Testament as the prophet, as the priest, and as the king. First of all, we say Jesus the prophet reveals God to us. Jesus the prophet reveals God to us. Now I'm picking it up in, in Deuteron Deuteronomy chapter 18. And if you look at verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. 1,500 years before Jesus was born, or 3,500 years away from now, there was that great prophet Moses, and he talked about another prophet that would be similar to him, but of course is going to be greater than him. Now the Jewish people, then and now, regard, Jesus, uh, regard Moses as the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. But Dr. John Walver, the former president of Dallas Seminary, wrote, Without question, Christ is the greatest of the prophets. Unlike all other prophets, Christ revealed God not only in his spoken ministry, but in his life and in his person. You remember the book of Hebrews begins something like this. God, who in various uh, times and in various manners spoke to the fathers through the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us through his Son, the Lord Jesus. And then he goes ahead and he, and he writes this in Hebrews 3.3, 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now, we love the book of Hebrews, and if you uh, have never studied it, it's a very beautiful uh, picture of the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The key word in Hebrews is better. So anytime you go to Hebrews, just remember the key word is better. And it's showing that Christ is better than everything that came before him in the Old Testament. He's better than the persons. He's better than institutions. And so he, he begins his books as showing Christ is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better uh, than the ceremonies. He's better than the, uh, the covenants, the sacrifices, and everything that precedes it. And in light of that, chapter 11, the chapter of faith, walk by faith. Chapter 12, walk by hope. Chapter 13, live a life of love. Now that's basically the book of Hebrews uh, in, in a summary form. And what you're going to see here is that though these great prophets arose all the way from the time of Samuel and Moses all the way through Malachi, there was not one prophet after Moses that achieved the status that Moses had promised. So 1,400 years go by. The last 400 of those 1,400 years 
are what theologians call the silent years. By the silent years, that means God never spoke a word to humanity. And so the voice of God was absent for 400 years until the birth of Christ was announced. And then we find that there was a person that was read about this morning uh, in the lighting of the candle by the name of John the Baptist. He appears on the scene. Crowds started coming. Multitudes were coming to listen to John. He was an unusual uh, a man, an unusual preacher in his, in his uh, presence as well as in his proclamation. And so the Jewish leaders became very concerned and they sent the chief priests and scribes to find out who, in, who, who is this person. And the first thing he says is, you need to understand, I'm not the Christ. But rather, he is the fulfillment of two other prophecies, Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, when before Christ came, there would become one who was a voice crying in the wilderness. But then notice he said this, well, then if you're not Christ, who are you? Are you Elijah? He says, no. And then notice he says, then are you the prophet? And he answers that, no. Now, what I want you to notice is that definite article before the word prophet. He's not asking him, are you a prophet? He's saying, are you what? The prophet. Now, when you say the prophet, what is the prophet? The prophet spoken of 1,500 years before by Moses that there would be a greater one than he, but similar to him, that would be raised up. Now, if you move then in, into the ministry of Jesus, you see in John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. And then after he feeds the 5,000, notice what, uh, what, what, what is said when the Jesus, uh, Jewish people suspected he might be the one for whom they're waiting. They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now we go to the next chapter, 7, Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is preaching. He talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He'll be like rivers of living water who was not yet given. And then right after that, notice what the people said, John 7:40. This really is the prophet. And every time you have the definite article, and that's very important in the Greek language. So they weren't just looking for a prophet. They're looking for the prophet. Who is the prophet, the one Moses prophesied 1,500 years before who would come? Now we come to the book of Acts, and we get to Acts chapter 3, and it's early in church history. And we see that Peter has healed a man for 40 years, then he preaches the gospel of Christ. He takes them all the way back to their history and how they killed the prophets then. And then how they killed the greatest prophet of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then notice what he says in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 and uh, 23. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you. Now notice he's quoting from Deuteronomy 18.15. So everything I've said to you so far isn't a figment of my imagination. When they said, when Moses said, you're going to get a prophet. And they said, are you the prophet John? He says, No. And then John 6, truly this is the prophet. Indeed, John 7, this is the prophet. Now that's all culminated in Acts 3 when Peter says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, he's going back to Deuteronomy 18. And if you went back there and read the whole chapter that we don't have time to do, he's warning us against what Pastor Rob talked about last week, about listening to wrong voices around you. 
And in particular, he talks about eight areas of the occult. And he says, avoid them, don't listen to them. Rather, listen to the prophet. And in those eight forms of the occult, you have things like uh, astrology and you have things like uh, fortune telling and horoscope, things of that, that kind of nature. And all he's doing to the people of God is saying, do not listen to those voices around you. Listen rather to the voice of the Lord Jesus, because if you don't notice people, you're going to be destroyed. Listen to this great prophet whom God has sent. Now, why do, we need, why do we need to listen to the voice of God alone and not pay any attention to these voices around us? It's simply because, it seems to me, that the occult or the false prophets belittle God and they exalt man, or to put it in another way, the occult is simply a continuation of the ancient satanic deception that this series began with, taking us back to Genesis 3, when Satan said to our first parents, what? Hath God said. And, and, and Satan's whole deception, no matter what avenue he chooses, is always to question the absolute authority of the Holy Word of God. Don't listen. Now, listen, I, I'm, I, I don't know this as a fact. I, I know it only to, to speculate, in a sense. I guarantee you, though, there are people here today who dabble in these things. You think it's kind of a game to play with a horoscope. You think it's kind of a game to try to find out the future apart from the prophetic scriptures. And I'm telling you to stop it. It's not good for you. It will lead you in no good place whatsoever. Be like the mother of Mary who said, like Moses, whatever he says, do it. And Moses says, listen to this truth. Peter then repeats it here uh, as, as, as well. So why do we need a prophet to reveal God to us? Simply stated, because we're blind, we are ignorant, we are darkened in our understanding, and God, because of his infinite, unconditional, and perfect love, wants every one of us to come to know him, to obey him, to enjoy him, and to know the truth. And what is the truth? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. You cannot separate the living word, the Lord Jesus, from the written word, the holy word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was, was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of, of men. And then later on, and the word became flesh, Christmas and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only uh, of the father begotten full of grace and truth so make sure you follow and listen to this voice of the great prophet who is Jesus uh, the prophet who reveals God to us and the reason he does it is because he loves you he loves you with an infinite love I don't know who it was but I remember years ago I read or I heard where a person said, you know, I can understand why dust would want to become deity. But for the life of me, I'll never understand why deity would want to become dust. Why would God want to become a human? 
And the only answer is because what? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus the prophet reveals, reveals God to us. Moving on secondly, Jesus the priest reconciles us to God. Jesus the priest reconciles us to God. Now what did the priest do in, in Old Testament times? Well, they offered sacrifices to God on behalf of themselves and on behalf of the people of God. It is rightly said the prophet and the priest both stand as a mediator, in a sense, between God and man. So I want you to think of the prophet standing here, and what is he doing? He's taken the message of God, the prophet reveals God to man, and he's transmitting it to mankind. That's the prophet. Now, in a very applicable sense, though not in the most technical sense, every time Pastor Rob stands up here and teaches the scripture, he utters a quote-unquote prophetic voice. He is revealing the truths of God to us down here. So he stands in between the two, and that's confirmed in 1 Corinthians 14, speaking words of edification and encouragement to us. Now over here is the priest. He too stands between God and man. The difference, though, is this. In standing between God and man, he now represents mankind, and the arrow now goes up. If over here with the prophet, the arrow comes down, over here with the priest, the arrow goes up. So the priest stands in the temple in the Old Testament for 1,500 years, representing the people of God as he offers us up the sacrifice that could never take away their sins, but pointed to an ultimate lamb of God who indeed would take away their sins once and for all. So Jesus is the prophet who speaks the truth of the word of God to us, but then he is also the priest who, having offered himself as the sacrifice of our sins, speaks on our behalf to God. So 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus alone is now the one great high priest, the one mediator. He alone is the only one who stands between sinful mankind and a holy God. He becomes the Pontifex Maximus. He becomes, and that word means a bridge builder. He builds the bridge. And so the priest, the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, now catch this, he not only is offering up the sacrifice as the priest of God for our sins, but he is the sacrifice as well. So the great high priest Jesus offers up the Lamb of God, who of course is himself as the sacrifice for sins. Now I want to take you back to Psalm 110. And you know, if I were to ask you this morning, who are your favorite who are your favorite people in the Old Testament? Give me just one or two. I doubt anybody here, and I may be wrong, but I doubt anyone here would say, you know, my favorite person in the Old Testament is Melchizedek. Now, some of you are looking at me, who did you say? Melchizedek. But he's one of my favorite. 
And uh, you only read about him in two scriptures of the Old Testament. He's only found two times uh, in, in the Old Testament. But Psalm 110 is a great, what we call a messianic psalm. Well, all that means is that the psalm was written to show us the, that, that it was prophesying the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 1, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord... Do you understand 3,000 years after this was written, we are listening to a conversation between the Father and the Son. That's phenomenal. We're actually on the inner circle hearing the Father talk to the Son. By the way, Jesus uses this verse, we don't have time to look at it, in Matthew 22 when they were constantly going after him and trying to test him. And he says, let me ask you a question. Who, of whom was David speaking when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit down at the right hand? Well, we know the answer to that. This is the father talking to the son. The father, Yahweh, says to Adonai, the Lord Jesus, his son, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. That would be the king, his rule. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be upon you. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who's the father talking to? He's talking to his son. What's he saying to the son? You're going to be a mighty ruler. You're going to be a king with a scepter in your hand. But you're also going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You are my son, but he says in verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is, again, what we call a messianic psalm. So you ask the question, well, how do you know if a psalm is messianic or not? And there's three simple ways. Number one, the psalm itself will say it's messianic. Number two, it may not say it's messianic, but another writer of scripture will say, as it is written in the psalms, da-da-da-da-da-da. So another writer of scripture says it was messianic. Or number three, when it can fit no other person but the Messiah. Now in this case, Psalm 110, it fits all three. So all three criteria for whether or not this is messianic or not are all fit uh, in this hermeneutical principles. So amazing, this psalm fits all three. The offices of prophet, priest, and king. And in these offices that we're looking at, prophet, priest, and king, they were designed in Israel to be separated, especially the king and the priest. Now stay with me here. I don't want to lose anybody. The priestly office in the Old Testament was always dedicated to a son of Aaron who must come from the tribe of Levi. And so we read in Exodus 28.1, Bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from the people of Israel to serve me as priests. So here you plainly see that if you're going to be a priest anointed by God, stay with me, you've got to be what? From the tribe of Levi. Now, technically, a king could be from any tribe. But in Messiah's case, 
In Jesus' case, now stay, he has to come from the tribe of Judah. Now how do I know that the Messiah King has to come from the tribe of Judah? Well, you listen to your scriptures in Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Revelation 5, 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Of course, we all know that's the Lord Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So here's the question. If we're talking about Jesus, Old, look, Old Testament Christmas, Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, how can this one who is a prophet and now is also our, our priest, how can this priest who has to come from the tribe of Levi be also a king who has to come from the tribe of Judah? Do you see the problem? Are you totally confused at this point? Okay, you can see then at least the, the, the problem that we're faced with. You, got to, you can't come from two tribes, you're from one tribe or the other. But if you're a priest, you've got to be of Levi. Or you've got to be, if you're a king, the, the Messiah king, in this case, you've got to be from the tribe of Judah. And the only answer you're going to find to that dilemma is found right here in Psalm 110, where we're introduced, catch it, to a new order of a priesthood that is superior to the Aaronic priesthood of the tribe of of, of, of Levi. Now, Melchizedek is an interesting person. We don't, our time this morning can't devote to him. There's too much to say. But you don't know anything about his past. You don't know anything about a mother and father. You don't know anything about his death. You don't know anything other than what is said in two scriptures. Abraham, so he lived at the time of Abraham. That's 4,000 years ago, 2000 BC. Abraham paid him tithes. Oh, that also tells me that tithe came 500 years before it was commanded to be paid by Moses, but that's another subject too, okay? But, it, but in this case, what you have is, and be, now catch this, Levi was yet in the loins of Abraham. That's the argument of Hebrews. And so you go from the lesser to the greater. That's why the Melchizedekian priesthood was of a higher order than that of Levi. Now this is confirmed in Hebrews 5, 6, where he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Pick it up in Hebrews 6, 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so Psalm 10, if you just package it together, Psalm 10 pictures the Messiah as a warrior king, who is the Messiah King, who will shatter the kings of the earth on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment. But then all of a sudden, this same warrior king now becomes our sympathetic high priest who understands us, who knows us, who wants to connect us to the Father, who was in all points tempted like we are, yet apart from sin. Now let's bring this together just for a practical thought. As we were singing this morning, this thought came to me, Christmas time is such a wonderful time. And we sing about joy and, and uh, all that it brings to our hearts and lives. And then my mind started wondering, I thought, you know, a lot of people in church this morning that don't have that kind of joy. Somebody here is suffering, your home's falling apart. Your marriage is being ripped apart. You don't know what's gonna happen. 
You don't know next Christmas whether you even have a marriage together. Some of you have a child or a grandchild strung out somewhere far from God. Some of you are facing other pressures, temptations. Some of you feel like failures. Let me say to you, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the key, that's the starting point. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a warrior king going before you who is the omnipotent son of God reigning from heaven and nothing is too hard for him. And with that warrior king in that same personhood, you have a high priest who is so sympathetic with you, who weeps with you, who understands your frailties, who understands your pressures. And in light of this warrior king and sympathetic high priest, I say don't give up. Don't stop. Don't throw in the towel. It's always too soon. Stay focused on the king priest. If you look at things around you, your circumstances, you're going to get mighty depressed. But I'll tell you one thing. I... I have never found the Lord leading me to a depressing thought. Never in my life. And as you stay focused on him, he helps you face reality, but with hope in your heart and life. So when we feel all alone, betrayed, hurt, and beaten down, tired, anxious, or sad, we have this king who's in omnipotent. We have this priest who sympathizes. And this same priest, the Lord Jesus is also the Lamb of God that was offered up for our sins. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. Listen uh, to these wonderful words, Hebrews 10. I find it in my own Bible, 11 to 14. I just love them. For every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. There's not a bull, a goat, a lamb, a scapegoat that ever took anyone's sins away. That's why it's called the day of atonement. The Hebrew word atone means to cover. The sins of the people of the Old Testament, they were simply covered. They were never washed away. It wasn't until God's perfect lamb came and offered himself as a sacrifice that now we say our sins are removed for us from ever as far as the east is from the west. The blood of bulls and goats can never do that. But when Christ, verse 12, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. There is one piece of furniture you'll never find in the tabernacle or the, high, or the temple of Israel in the holiest of holies where the priest offered up the sacrifice. You know what you'll never find? You'll never find a chair. You'll never find a stool. Why? He could never sit down. Why? His work was never completed. He just had to keep offering, offering, and offering. In contrast to the type of Christ, we go to the antitype and we say, the father says to his son, Sit down on the right hand. Why? It is finished. Now, if something's going to get cleansed, 
like you and me. Something's got to get dirty. If I spill coffee on my coffee table, I go get a cloth, right? And I clean it. And then I look at that cloth. What's happened? It got dirty. Jesus filthied himself on your behalf. Got it? He dirtied himself for you. He takes all of your sin and he bore it on the cross. If something's going to get clean, something has got to get dirty. There's a way back from the dark paths of sin. There's a door wide open that you may go in. And there's Calvary's cross where you must begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. One more thought here. I've just got to share it with you. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Three thoughts here. Christ is able to save forever. Two, he always lives to make intercession. Three, this eternal intercession for those who draw near to God through Christ. Now, we speak a lot about the finished work of Christ. Well, we ought to. It's one of our favorite subjects. May I introduce you to the unfinished work of Christ? There's a work that is unfinished that is still going on. And it doesn't have so much to do with Jesus, the prophet who hung on the cross for our sins and cried, it is finished. But it's Jesus, the great high priest, who what does it say? Ever lives to make intercession for us. Now, why is this important? I want to take you to heaven, where every day it's like a courtroom drama. Revelation chapter 12, if you read that passage of scripture carefully, Revelation chapter 12, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, especially there at the, at the last part of the verse, who accuses them day and night before our God. What's he talking about? He's talking about the person who was filthy, but then Christ filthied himself to take away their sins. Now, if God would have just taken us to heaven at that moment we were saved, that would have been glorious. But he left us here to be a witness. And as we move through this life, you and I find that we get our feet dirty, right? Sin comes into every life. Wrong thoughts, wrong. Some of you have come laden with some unconfessed sin in your heart today, and yet you're a believer. Do you know what happens every time a believer sins? It says, day and night, Satan accuses us before the Father, the heavenly, eternal judge. He says, look at Fletcher down there. He's one of your children. He's the son of God. Christ filthied himself in order that he might be clean. Well, look at him now. He's not so clean, is he? And he's right. But then, my children, I write unto you that you sin not. 1 John 2, 1. But if any man sins, Christian, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Satan is accusing me. I have sinned as a Christian. And what happens? 
the judge of the universe listening to this accuser, this prosecuting attorney, has someone come up, a paraclete, that's the word for advocate, Jesus Christ is our advocate. Same word used of the Holy Spirit, by the way, when it's translated by the word, he shall send you a comforter. And I don't know that Jesus says a thing, it doesn't say. I have a feeling what happens is every time we are accused that maybe all that Jesus does is hold forth his hands with the nail prints. And that says it all, doesn't it? I filthied myself for all their sins. Doesn't mean we have a license to sin. Quite the opposite. And then that Hebrews 7.25, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God because we have the continual intercession of our Lord Jesus as our great high priest. Warren Wearsby wrote, it has well been said that Christ's life in heaven is his prayer for us. It is what he is that determines what he does. And as our great high priest, what he does is intercede for us. Jesus the prophet reveals God to us. Jesus the priest reconciles us to God continually. Now we come and we close. Jesus the king reigns over us as God. Jesus as the king. You see, one of the purposes of the incarnation when Jesus took on human flesh was the fulfillment of one of the promises, one of the covenants in the Old Testament called the Davidic covenant. You read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll read just a few verses. Picking up at verse 13, the whole psalm as well as Psalm 89 is a psalm on this covenant that God is going to establish through the seed of David an eternal king who will reign over the world forever and ever. In verse 13, he's talking. Now notice where it begins, 2 Samuel 7. He shall build a house for my name. Background, David added in his heart what? He's dwelling in this beautiful palace and he looks over. He's God has no house to dwell in. So he has in his heart, he goes, he says, I want to build a temple for Almighty God. God's answer to him basically is this. David, you're a man of war. You're not a man of peace. You can't build my house, which is a house of peace. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You've got a dream to build a house for me. That's a good thing. But you're not going to do it. Your son is going to do it. Who's his son? A man by the name of Solomon. So he says, he shall build a house, verse 13, for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, what I want you to, to catch here is this. David's going to fulfill some imminent prophecies, building a house. But then all of a sudden, we are t- translated into the, into the uh, prophetic future, where there's going to be a king, a son of David, who will come on the scene, and he goes far beyond Solomon and his imperfections, and he will rule forever. What I want you to see is that word forever is used three times, and I've put it in yellow font up there. Verse 13, his kingdom forever. Verse 16, be made sure forever before me. Verse 16, your throne shall be established forever. Now, the Old Testament has many prophecies concerning a king who would fulfill the promise of God, uh, of God to David. And when Christ came, he fulfilled the prophecies of the king, though the full revelation of his work as king was reserved for his second coming. 
Now, what I want you to think of is this, or when you go to 2 Samuel 7, and there's many Old Testament scriptures like it. I want you to stand with me, and I want you to look down the road, and there you see two mountains, and you see two huge mountain peaks like the Swiss Alps. And all that you can see as you look down there, you see the top of mountain one and the top of mountain two. What can't you see? You can't see what? The valley that's in between. The first mountain represents something that might be imminent to the prophet. Like David, his son Solomon's going to build the house. That's an imminent. But then he goes into the forever aspect, into the eternal aspect, to the future, which has been 3,000 years since then, over 3,000 years, and says there's coming a greater son of David, who is the Messiah King, who will establish his throne, and when he establishes his throne, it will what? Be established forever. Not only in the millennial kingdom, but in the eternal kingdom. And that's exactly why Christ came, to be their king. So Pilate says, then what shall I do with your king, Jews? And they said what? We have no king but Caesar. The kingdom is now postponed. Now we have the church age. That's another valley. If we look at those two mountaintops, we see the first mountaintop might be a prophecy of Christ's first coming. The second mountaintop behind that is the prophecy of second coming. What we cannot see is that valley in between. And for 2,000 years, that valley has been composed of God calling to the nations of the world and calling out for them a people for his name's sake. And they're baptized by the Holy Spirit the moment they believe and become a member of the church of God, the, the bride of Christ. And someday the Lord Jesus Christ is gonna say, come on up here. And then a few years later, he's going to establish this kingdom. You got, you, you got all that? You're with me, okay? Now it's all there. But the fact that it was postponed didn't alter the complete fulfillment of the prophecy. Let's bring it on home. By the way, if you ever preach in an American, uh, African-American church, I've had a habit, I used to preach in Washington, D.C. You know you've gone beyond your limit because they'll talk to you while you're preaching. <laughs> Amen, brother. Preach on, brother. All right, all right. And now, I'll never have the one black brother introduced me to a new saying. Uh, bring it on home. Yeah. <laughs> bring it on home. We're going to bring it on home here, brother, Okay. So let's trace this prophecy of Jesus King through a few verses. Number one, David affirmed the prophecy in Psalm 24. He talks about the king of glory. Gabriel announced it in Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. Notice, the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. King Herod heard the king of the Jews was born, had the children two years and under slaughtered. Wise men from the east came with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I love it. You give gold to a king. Frankincense comes from incense, which is always associated with prayer. The intercessory high priest of the Lord Jesus. Myrrh was associated with what? When they buried Jesus and they wrapped him, remember, in the burial clothes, they put spices and myrrh and frankincense in it. There's the one of the prophet. You say, are you reading too much into that? Probably so, but it makes for interesting preaching, doesn't it? <laughs> then it says, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt on Palm Sunday, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming. Pilate wrote on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Apostle John proclaimed the king's second coming in Revelation. His name, king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is the prophet. 
He reveals God to us. He's the priest. He reconciles us to God. He's the king. He reigns over us. So what's happening that first Christmas with that little child in the feeding trough was the greatest king the world will ever know, the greatest priest the, the, the world will ever know, the greatest prophet the world will ever know. As the prophet, he reveals God. As the priest, he reconciles us to God. As the king, he reigns over us before whom we bow. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Shall we bow in prayer? Now, maybe you didn't stay with me all the way, and I can understand that. 